So all cultures and societies, it doesn't matter the time period, geographical location, follows a set of morality and ethics. <clears throat> what binds people together, it doesn't matter if it's a family, a marriage, a church, a workplace, a team, a city, a state, a country. What binds us together is a set of standards that outlines the nature of the relationship. To be a healthy and functioning member of society or in a marriage, in a family, in the workplace, fill in the blank, you have to follow pre-established and pre-agreed to rules, right? When I was driving in the UK this past summer, despite all of my driving experiences here in America, I could not drive on the side of the road that I wanted to. Did I have the ability to drive on the right side of the road? Yes. But even though I could, I did not. It was not natural for me to drive on the other side of the road and the other side of the car. It's naturally for me to drive on the right side of the road. So what did I do? Despite what I wanted to do, I complied. My will, in essence, was not free to drive on the right side of the road. It was an option, though I did not take it to drive on the correct side. I was in a different culture. And to be successful and to arrive in the next step of the destination, I had to follow the established rules of the country that I was in. But here's the thing. In my heart, and I believe in the heart of every single person who's ever existed, is a nature that wants to reject rules. You see that? We want to reject rules that comes from the outside in and replace them with rules from the inside out. But here's the thing. Most of us, at least I believe, are not real anarchists. Do we have any anarchists out there? I hope not. So we begrudgingly follow the rules as if it's a ball and chain. We do this to fit in to the relationships, the culture, and the society that we are engaged with. We follow the rules to keep the peace in the marriage. We follow the rules to keep the peace in the family, at work, in society. And the motivation, if you and I are honest, is that of fear. If I do not do what that relationship wants, they'll leave me. So I'll do it. If I don't do what culture wants, I will not be accepted. But this is where the church, which I believe is the greatest organization, the greatest society on the planet, and the gospel clashes with American culture. American culture accepts you in relationship to how your life reflects their values. If you dress the way Americans do, you listen and watch the things that Americans listen to and watch, you will be accepted. Because no one wants to be around the water cooler on Monday morning and not be able to be part of the chatter, right? But God does not accept you on the basis of what you do or don't do. God accepts you, the Christian, on the basis of what his son has done for you, is doing for you, and will do for you. That's eschatology. The issue, therefore, of doing and performing to fit into those relationships, that marriage, that family, that workplace, American culture, is a major issue for all of us that you and I have to reconcile. And it relates to the issue that Jesus is bringing up in today's hard saying. And as we have been doing, we don't want to cut through the knot. We want to slowly untie the knot and then let it breathe so we can live well for Jesus as his body. Deep down, we interpret verses like Vernon read moments ago like this. What I do and what I don't do will fundamentally determine my relationship with God. Today's hard saying is going to address this issue, that we do things to be accepted by others, spouses, families, 
bosses, co-workers, culture, and we even do this with our concept of God. American culture says, conform to our rules to be accepted. So if you don't follow their ideals, most of which is opposed to being a Christian, and to the gospel, you're going to be marginalized and rejected to a certain degree. Now, this is ironic, though, especially about Western American culture, because one of the rallying cries of our culture is that of inclusion. That's the rage. Diversity, right? That's the rage today in culture. But deep down, American culture really has no desire to put up with alternative points of view, especially if they're biblical alternative points of view. But the gospel is here being preached today to tell you who struggles with this concept that God crucified his son so you can be accepted and you don't have to do and focus on doing anything to be accepted by God. His son has done it for you. And you just rest in it, receive it, and rely on it. And that's where we're going today. Let's get to our proposition. You're going to see today through these two verses we're going to look at that the Christian relies on the perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is given by God as a gift of faith. And the result is, you and I, who rely on Jesus, get to experience eternity. That's where we're going. You and I have a righteousness problem. That's why we sang, Lord, I need you moments ago. We sing it with our lips, but our hearts weren't in it this morning. That's why I was watching most of you during worship today, just watching you. Many times I just have my back to you, and I see, process what's going on. We have a righteousness problem. We have a righteousness problem because you and I have a sin problem. We never think that our sin is deep sin. Our sin, our failings are really failings. They're just mistakes. They're just mess-ups. That's why God made erasers, right? We minimize our sins and maximize the sins of others. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? I know that I have. All people, even in this room, are one or two people. They either have a desire to do things God's way, or they have a desire to do things their way. And make no mistake, there are people in our church right now that want to do things their way instead of God's way, because they have an authority problem. Just like every single person does. We have a righteousness problem. We have a righteousness problem because we have a sin problem. But thank God for the reformers, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, because they help us understand what real righteousness is so that we can understand the gospel. And the reformers distinguish between what's called, what they called civic righteousness and spiritual righteousness. Civic righteousness is the good that people do to function in their marriage, in their families, at work, in their friendships, in their hobbies and teams and organizations for the city, for the county, for the state, for the country, for the world. So during holidays, we join soup kitchens, and we do this to feel better about ourselves because we have a righteousness problem. When disasters strike, we text SEND to give $5 to the American Red Cross, right? So we don't murder, we don't cheat, we don't hurt people, we don't steal, we pay our taxes, and we drive on the right side of the road. And amen to that. We do all these things to feel good about ourselves and to be accepted by the relationships at large, from culture down to that romantic relationship. I know many Christians, and I've said this to you before, I know many Christians who have far, sorry, non-Christians, who have far more civic righteousness than Christians I know. But civic righteousness is not spiritual righteousness. The misinterpretation and cutting through the knot is confusing the two. You do civic righteousness. You show up to the soup kitchen. You text, send 
to give $5 to the American Red Cross. You don't do spiritual righteousness. Spiritual righteousness is done by God in you. But once again, we have an authority problem. We don't want anybody on the inside to tell us what to do on the inside. We want to be rulers of the inside and let it come out in our lives on the outside. So whether you are a Christian or whether you're an atheist, though I don't believe there is truly such thing as an atheist, and I'd love to have any conversation with anybody who'd like to talk about that, but whether you are a Christian or an atheist, you have to answer these questions. Whose voice am I ultimately going to listen to? Even the atheist has to answer that. Who am I ultimately going to rely on? And the answer to that set of questions lets you know who is your functional God. So atheists, at the end of the day, have themselves as their own God. Because deep down, even that atheist is Adam and Eve's son or daughter, whether they believe it or not. And Satan told Eve, once you eat from this tree, you will be like God. The atheist deep down, just like any other human being, wants to be their ultimate authority and their own God. So you can rely on yourself as final authority. You can rely on that romantic relationship as your authority, the set of rules in your family, at work, the culture at large. That's the way of functional atheism. Or you can rely on Jesus. That's the way of Christianity. What's the difference? Unlike yourself, unlike that person, unlike the set of standards in American culture, only Jesus is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Do you get that? The ideals that drove progressive American culture 30 years ago is now conservative today. You ask the grandparent generation, what was the liberal progressive ideas of the 50s? And they're conservative today. No, no, they're extreme today. Culture is an ever-changing sea of standards and morality and ethics. And my exhortation to you is don't give in to it. Don't follow it. Because there is a set of standards out there that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his name is Jesus. Whatever you rely on today, moving out of this place, whether you say that you're a Christian, truly is your functional God. And the gospel says, Jesus is the only one worthy enough to rely on to live well in this life. He is the only one that can set things right in you, for you, and between you and God. And that's where we're going with this hard saying of Jesus today. You ready to get started? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Diane. <laughs> I love moments like that just to see what your response is. Okay, first point. You're going to see Jesus' call to possess perfect righteousness. But as we're going to clarify today, we are to possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus to experience eternity. I want you to think back to our first set of parents, Adam and Eve. They were the very first humans to fall short of God's standard because they replaced, they desired to replace God as their ultimate authority and as their ultimate affection. So when they fell, do you notice what they did? They began to work. Remember what they did? They began to work for themselves and create clothing. They had this experience of nakedness and shame, so they went to work to cover up their nakedness and their shame. And that set the template for what every single human being has done ever since Adam and Eve. I always think it's ridiculous, though, showing, and it kind of confirms the Bible when people say there's no such person as Adam and Eve, yet their struggles are exactly what you and I struggle with. Because were their children. Then they heard the voice of God. Remember that? They heard the voice of God, and he was walking through the garden, so they worked again to hide 
They needed to find a hiding spot from the presence of God. They did both things because they no longer felt right with God, covered up their bodies, and hid from him. But eventually God confronts them, right? And thank God he does, because then in the opening pages of the Jewish Bible, we see the major thread of the Bible, which is redemption and grace and mercy. God confronts them. And here's what you and I need to realize. This is what real love is. Real love isn't non-confrontational. I'm sorry, those of you who are non-confrontational. you got to struggle with God's idea that that's not really love. you got to push through that. Real love does not ignore sin, nor does real love ignore injustice. Some of y'all are like, I don't ignore injustice. It rages me, so let's go. Let's keep talking about this. Real love is just, but real justice is also love. And you can't have one without the other. We see God in the garden neither condemn Adam and Eve nor commend them. And that is our pattern for dealing with sinners still today, like myself and yourself. We cannot commend them, but we cannot condemn them. And how relevant is the opening verses and chapters of the Jewish Bible still to us today? As you and I engage with people who are not like us, we cannot commend them, but we cannot condemn them. All right? It's a tough situation to be in as a Christian. That's why the, the, the path is narrow, right? And the gate is narrow. It's not for everyone. God doesn't condemn or commend them for trying to be their own authority for making themselves close, for hiding themselves from the presence of God. God calls them out, and then he moves to restore them. You remember what God does next? He takes Adam and Eve's clothing. They are out in the open. They are now naked and ashamed again. And does he condemn them? Pour out his wrath on them? Like you think will happen to you if you're honest about who you are with God and others? No. He gives them New clothing. Remember that? So in the very first three chapters of the Bible, we see the pattern of redemption and restoration that only God can do for us. Our efforts to make ourselves feel better about God or feel right with God will fail. Just like the the fig coverings or loin coverings Adam and Eve made for themselves. Because the reality is, you and I do not possess enough righteousness to settle things with God. We don't. So God will work to bridge the gap between the righteousness that I try to do and where he is, and that insurmountable distance he bridges, and he bridges with his son. Let's get to verse 20 and get to the first hard saying. And Jesus says, I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, what? You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when this hard saying is isolated from its context, a serious misinterpretation takes place. This is the basis for what we call legalism. This is the basis for what some Christian denominations call the sacraments, that there are things that you can do practically to build up your righteousness with God. So if you do enough throughout your life, you'll go to heaven. But then if not, you go to another place where your loved ones can fill in that gap. That's what we call Catholicism. Now, this sentence sounds like Jesus is saying that to experience eternity... Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So for us to untie this knot, you and I need clarity on what righteousness is and what it isn't and who the scribes and Pharisees are. The righteousness that Jesus refers to here is not civic righteousness. And that's why the reformers like Calvin and Luther are so vital for us to know and help us understand what Jesus is saying. The righteousness that Jesus refers to is spiritual righteousness. 
And so when you put that in context and you know something about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, a whole new world opens for interpretation. Both Old and New Testament teaches us that you and I are dead spiritually. We can do civic righteousness, which can be confusing to others looking on. We can do all the civic righteousness in the world. And we still have a dead spiritual righteousness. They're two different things. Civic righteousness doesn't automatically prove spiritual righteousness. And the scribes and the Pharisees are examples of this. For those of you who have read the Gospels, and this Wednesday night, we are going to begin reading the Gospel of Matthew together. And we're going to see how Jesus talks about scribes and Pharisees. He has very harsh language for them. Two of his favorites are hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. A hypocrite, we have to redefine how culture uses hypocrisy. Because we like to say in American culture, especially in politics and the political game, that both sides are hypocrites. But here's what the word originally means in this culture. A hypocrite is someone whose words and actions don't reflect what's actually going on inside their heart. So it's not just saying one thing and doing another. That's how culture defines hypocrisy. It's your words and your actions, what you say publicly, not matching what's really going on on the inside. So you know what that means? Every one of us struggles with hypocrisy. That's why we need to bend our hearts and bend our knees and ask the Spirit to make us humble. A whitewashed tomb has this edifice, this exterior that is meticulously kept. Whitewashed means algae has not touched it because there's so much attention given to it. But underneath that whitewashed tomb or inside that whitewashed tomb is death. The scribes and Pharisees cared more about their public life, how things looked like on the outside, public perception, than their personal life with God. And any hypocrites, including the scribes and Pharisees, can't put up the show forever. They can't put on the mask forever. They have to take it off. Which is why all that religious external stuff came to a head in the life of Jesus. And all that doing good they did ended in the crucifixion of Jesus because it revealed the hate in their hearts for anyone to have authority over them. So these scribes and Pharisees only prayed in public to be seen by people. The Pharisees only gave to the poor to be noticed by others. And throughout the years of reading Torah, the Jewish scriptures, they counted up the number of laws in the Pentateuch, in Torah. And they told up to 613 laws. Did you know that? They condense the Old Testament law. There are 613 things they have to keep and follow. And these Pharisees kept all of them. Our apostle Paul called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he far outran any other contemporary Pharisee during his time. They did the law externally perfectly. All 613. But they kept them as hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. That is why Jesus, when we read the Gospel of Matthew together this spring, we're going to see Jesus often use Isaiah. And one of the quotes that Jesus uses from Isaiah, he says something like, these people draw near to me with their, do you know? With their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is the danger heritage. All of you virtually this morning not all of you, saying things with your lips. Where is your heart? That's why we are in the temptation, no matter being going to church here for 20 years or 50 years, that we too are hypocritical. Because you may have sung things with your lips this morning, and your heart is so far from Jesus. Meaning you are the hypocrite, and you are the whitewashed tomb. Jesus here is clarifying what righteousness is. It's not the example set by scribes and Pharisees. Righteousness is God's perfect commitment to himself. 
God's perfect commitment to his word. Righteousness is the perfect match between personal and public life. Inside life, outside life. And this is something that no scribe, no Pharisee could ever do. They kept the 613 Jewish laws, but they did so with hearts that were full of themselves and not full of God. They did it for power. They did it for control. They did it for self-image. So when Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is raising the bar of what righteousness is. Do you see that? Jesus is very clearly rejecting the religion of the Pharisees, which is why they were so mad. Why eventually they rushed towards him and they had to murder him before Passover. Jesus rejects religion that focuses on the external while forgetting about the internal. Jesus rejects religion that looks good on the outside to the neglect of the soul. If the righteousness Jesus mentions here was civic righteousness, here's the sobering truth, heritage. Your righteousness would never be able to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. I can't keep 613 laws on my own. I can't. I have a hard time. I can juggle with two balls. Give me a third. I mess up. I'm not good at multitasking. 613, failure. No one fulfilled the law better than the Pharisees. So the righteousness that Jesus mentions is a righteousness that no one can possess on their own. The kind of righteousness that Jesus mentions must be given to them. The gospel says that God gives the righteousness of his son to his people, and he does it by faith. Sola fides. Only Jesus is perfectly righteous. The personal and the public life of Jesus perfectly matched during his advent. The heart of Jesus perfectly matched his words and actions on earth. Jesus held the scriptures, his word, as the highest standard of his life. So after he's baptized by John the Baptist and the Spirit leads him to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil, in the midst of his temptation, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Why? Because Jesus believed that the scriptures were the highest authority of a human being, of which he is 100% human. Biblical righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is four things. Four things. It is, and I've said this before, an alien righteousness. That's something that Luther has taught us. We can possess civic righteousness, but the righteousness that you and I need for eternity isn't civic righteousness. So by alien righteousness, Luther means that it comes from the outside in. Whether it's been in biblical Judaism or biblical Christianity, Jesus and God has always called his people to welcome the outsider, to show hospitality to the alien, to show us that the fundamentals of life come from the outside in. And that's a total threat and challenge to what we call American nationalism that we have to resolve. Alien righteousness starts in God and comes into us. It starts from God and it changes our personal and public lives. Who we are, what we do when people are watching, and when no one is watching. That's what Jesus' alien righteousness does. Biblical righteousness is also an imputed righteousness. And oh boy, did we hammer out imputation last fall together, right? And we'll talk about it more in the point of application. We talked about it during our Safe and Sound series at Gather on Wednesday nights this past fall. We looked at imputation during our Assurance series. We were looking at the life of Abraham. Imputation is a two-way transfer. It's central to being a Christian. When God gives you the gift of faith to see Jesus and feel Jesus differently than he did before, a spiritual transaction takes place, and it's two-way. By faith, God gives the righteousness of his Son to you. But wait, there's more. 
He also takes your sins and your sorrows and gives them to Jesus. That's imputation. We talked about this, right? Give me a head nod. Okay, good, good. Biblical righteousness is also positional. It changes your position. It fundamentally changes our status, our position with God. When God gives us his gift of faith to see and feel differently about his son, he changes us. He changes our position from sinner to saint, from enemy to adopted sons and daughters of God. And biblical righteousness is practical. And this is the confusing part. The alien imputed righteousness of Jesus will practically change your habits. Change the way you think. Change the way you feel. Change the way you speak. Change the way you act. I'll never forget when I was a 15-year-old boy at King High School and I first became a Christian. And I was so struggling, like at PE class, and I'm, and I'm shooting basketball in the gym. And I, I, I'd get blocked because I was a terrible basketball player. And I started cursing. So mad. I'm like, no, I'm a Christian now. I can't talk like this. But I don't talk like that anymore. Why? Because I pray that God's work of righteousness in my life is practical. It changes my values. It changes the way I speak. It changes the way I think. It changes the way I act. Because this righteousness now in the Christian does not want to say or feel or think or do anything to dishonor that cross. Amen? So it means we change the way we speak, we change what we listen to, we change what we watch, we change the way we do marriage, we change the way we do families, the way we change, we change the way we do money, we will do it. Why? Because we want to honor that cross. Not to make ourselves feel right with God, but as a demonstration that we are right with God. You see that? Now I've said this before, Christians and non-Christians and their lives sometimes can look exactly the same. We both have marriages, we both have families, we both go to work, we both have hobbies, we both give. Christians and non-Christians both live generous lives. Culture and Christianity wants Christians and non-Christians to live generously, right? But the generosity of a Christian is done with a completely different motive. Both are generous externally, but in the inside, we could be worlds apart. Now let's look at verse 48. Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I added this verse because I just wanted to complicate matters before we make it better. And my wife is like, Heritage, welcome to my life. This is what my husband does. We're going to work to make things better, but before he does, he wants to make it worse. Doesn't it seem like Jesus is calling us to perfection here? Not only does our righteousness have to surpass that of the Pharisees, it has to be perfect as God's perfection. What? And in a sense, Jesus is absolutely right. He's right. This is true. This is a true statement. The righteousness that the Christian receives by faith in Christ alone is perfect. Jesus demonstrated it during his advent. Jesus is not calling you and I today to perfectionistic ways. That's why our covenants and our affirmations here at Heritage, we call for patterns, right? Not perfection. Patterns that opens up for our humanity, right? Jesus is calling us to live by faith in him who took on flesh and lived a perfect life. And the misinterpretation comes because you and I have a sin problem. We have a misinterpretation of sin. Because my sin, (laughs) never as bad as your sin. And your sin, you think, is never as bad as my sin. And God looks on and says, both your sin utterly ruins you, but he doesn't stop there. It utterly ruins, yet still he sends his son. Here's how I want you to picture it. I want you to take a look at this sheet of paper. This sheet of paper is representative of you. Look at it. It's representative of you, made in the image of God, perfectly white. No tarnish, no mark, no nothing. 
Why? Because you are made in the image of God, not by part of evolution. You are made in the image of God, his perfect image. The heavenly father is perfect. Now, here's how some people view life and sin and righteousness. They believe that they are good to the core. We struggled through this a lot in the fall on Wednesday nights. To be confronted with a Bible that says there's no one who does good, no, not one. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. But people still believe, and I'm sure there are still some who come to Heritage who believe that the core of a human being, that they are good. And I've always said, it depends on what you mean by good. I could go with that, but it depends on what you mean. There are many people who believe that they're good, but they know they're not perfect. They just mess things up. I just made a mistake. You ever heard that one before? I say it to Tessa all the time. This is what they believe about their soul in the image of God. They just mess things up. It's just, it's just crumbled. And here's their idea of sin and righteousness. They believe that they can take this crumbled piece of paper and they can begin to smooth it out. This is legalism. This is the call to be perfect as God is perfect. That you can do something to smooth this out. And here's the thing. I'm doing pretty good right now, right? In just seconds, this sheet of paper looks infinitely better than it did moments ago, right? Civic righteousness can be very confusing. Civic righteousness is not spiritual righteousness. This was the idea of the Pharisees, that they can take something that's crumbled, and there are 613 things that they can do to crumble the piece of paper to make it new again. That's legalism. But here's the thing. There's nothing. I could spend the rest of our gathering today, gather on Wednesday with you, trying to make this perfectly smooth again. And you know what? It can never be perfectly smooth again. I'm sorry. That's sin. There's nothing you can do to make up for what you have done. What I have done. I can't smooth this out. I can't make it the way it was before. This is what people think that they can do. They can take the crumbled piece of paper and they can smooth it out again. That's civic righteousness. But the gospel teaches a far deeper understanding of sin and alongside a far more beautiful view of righteousness. Righteousness is not taking our crumbled souls and smoothing it out again. Biblical righteousness is actually this. Our souls, made in the image of God, isn't crumbled. This is what we did. This is what you're doing right now. When you sing with your lips and your heart is far from God, this is what you're doing right now. You're taking something that's already ripped, and you're making it worse. Hypocrisy makes things worse. Whitewashed tombs make things worse. Giving a presentation that your external life is right, when inside you're dead, this is what you're doing. And Jesus says, this is sin. Not the crumbled up piece of paper. This is sin. Mic drop. But our lives can be made right. Far better than smoothing out a crumbled piece of paper. And it begins with a proper view of sin. Acknowledging, this is my life. It's not, I didn't just crumble it up. I didn't just make a mistake. I utterly ruined the image of God. That's me. This is Pastor Joe. I can say it. Can you? If you struggle with authority, you can't. You'll just say, I'm crumbling up my life. I got to fix it. I got to get better. Legalism, legalism, legalism. Our lives are utterly ripped up. You and I are sinners, and the image of God in us is ruined. And your body says right now, so what? Let's avoid for a couple more minutes. This is going to be done, and then I can get out of here. I'm done. Your body says, so what? You don't have to believe God. Make your own life. And whatever you want to make it, make it as good as you can, because it's all you got. 
Culture says God doesn't exist. Everything that Pastor Joe just did is fabricated, trying to elicit an emotional reaction in you. That's what culture says. You can be your own God. Do whatever you want to make yourself happy in this life. But the gospel says, this is the broken image of God in you. And there's nothing that you can do to make this come back together again. The gospel says you can never put this piece of paper back together again. There's not enough laws. If God added 614th law, it wouldn't put this back together again because you're not strong enough and you're not wise enough. You're not spiritual enough. Only Jesus can restore the utterly broken image in you. And I wish I had the power to do this, to take this and you just got to go with it. And Jesus makes it new again. This is what his righteousness does. Takes you from this to this. Amazing, right? Heritage. You don't have to do things to make yourself feel right with God. I guess the only doing you have to do is to acknowledge and to rely on Jesus that this was your life before because of faith, God's gift of faith that he put into your heart for his son. This is now you. But the dilemma is we still feel like this, right? When really we're like this which means we have to gain Scripture's point of view to know that God loves you so much. He would take you from this and make you this. Only Jesus can restore the utterly broken image of God in you, and only Jesus can make things new. So to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect doesn't mean that you must be sinless you got to have the power to put the pieces of paper back together again to look like the original. To be perfect as the Father is perfect means you rely on the sinless one, Jesus, who always did the right thing with the right motive. Let's get to our point of application. In our point of application, you're going to see that you are to simply rest. Breathe in and breathe out. perfect righteousness of Jesus as your motive of living well. I'll let you in on the secret of pastors. Pastors of megachurches don't, I never heard my megachurch pastor acknowledge something like this. Pastors feel this more than others. Why? Because we're on the stage. We feel our brokenness more. We feel every wrong thing we say more, every wrong action more. And because the people of God are very willing to tell us, hey, I don't like what you just said. I don't like what you just did. So we feel it even more amplified. And the temptation for us is like, we can, right? Enough Bible reading, enough prayer. If I read 24 books this year, maybe I can put things back together. But living well begins when you agree with God about the condition of your life. Your life ain't just crumbled up. It's far beyond repair. There's nothing you can do to smooth it out again. There's no amount of cultural ideas and philosophies and agendas that can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Your life has been ripped to shreds, and there's no viable, true solution other than Jesus. All other options for living will fall short in some regard. You put yourself as your final and sole authority, and you walk out of this place today, and you're going to fall you're not strong enough. You may have the, the bravado and the gusto right now. Something has motivated you well enough that you're going to be better, but you're still human. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. So put culture as your final and ultimate authority, and you will eventually fall again. Why? Because what culture says today is a life well lived will not be what culture says 10 years from now. With the advancement of technology, it won't be the life well lived one year from now. Okay? So you can't rest in it. We can't rely on it. There is one and only one objective, never changing, never failing way to live a well life. And Jesus says, I am that way. Put Jesus as your authority, and he will carry you the rest of the way to a life well-lived right now. 
and then eternity in the next. And I want to remind you of two verses in our application that we went through this past fall and connect them to the points of just resting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that you don't have to do this anymore. And you can just rest in what Christ has done for you. First verse, Romans 4, 4 through 5. Paul says, okay, the one who works, okay, this is for you. If you're going to walk out today and you're thinking it's about your self-improvement, you do. This is what Paul says. The one who works, his wage is not credited as favor. This is the Greek word for grace. You don't get grace. You just get what's due. Thank God Paul doesn't stop there, right? This is the joy right now. This is the rest. To the one who does not work, but just believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Amen? You're telling me all I have to do is simply believe that Jesus is who he says he is and what he says about life is what life is really about. Yes! But you heard that even some pastors still struggle with this. That means it's not instant. The Christian life is a war, and it's not for the faints of heart. So we looked at this verse when we were seeing how the New Testament writers understood and applied the life of Father Abraham, their forefather, now to the new Christian life since they were now Christians. They no longer practiced Judaism. If you work to make yourself feel right with God, if you decide to walk out of this place today and say, I'm going to live to my own standards, or I'm going to live according to culture standards, whatever the TikTok hot video is, I'm going to follow it blindly. All you get is whatever is due from it. Whatever notoriety, whatever moment of fame, whatever moment of feeling good comes, that's all you get in this life. That's all you get. That's what Paul is saying. Work to feel right, and all that you get is that wage that's due to you. But there's a better way, heritage. Jesus is the way. Paul says if you follow in the footsteps of Abraham, if you simply entrust yourself to God, his character, and his promises, if you believe God who justifies by faith in his son, God will make you right with him. Work to make yourself feel right, and all you get is what's due. But believe God who justifies by faith, and you get the righteousness of his son. The basis for why you can say you're an adopted son and daughter of God. Because Jesus is your older brother, your elder statesman. Option one is to rely on yourself. Rely on what American culture says life is about. Option one is about having yourself as God, even if you say you are an atheist. Option two is to rely on Jesus. And how does this happen? Paul has told us this word credit is the word impute. Imputation is the answer. Believe Jesus and God credits, God imputes. God transfers his son's righteousness to you and your sins to him. Then we close with 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's a second text I want to share with you. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Heritage. God is joyfully serious about righteousness. Do you see this? God is serious about making his people right again. God is serious about picking up these pieces and making it whole again. Do you see in this verse how serious God the Father is? He is so serious. His son took on flesh to secure this for his people. God the Father made Jesus, who never sinned, to experience the wrath of God for being a sinner. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And that verb to be is where you and I get the English word genesis. He made him who knew no sin, sin became. He took on sin for us. God the Father did this so that you would become the righteousness of God in his son. So only Jesus will free you from a life of fitting in 
to what culture says is a life well lived. We say this a lot in our teams. As Christians, we must be willing to lose so that we can win. That's the gospel. The way up is down. The way to be rich is to be poor. Right? You want to be a master, you be the slave. That's Christianity. That's not American culture, but that's Christianity. Only Jesus frees you from a life of trying to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. Only Jesus gives a righteousness that's better than the Pharisee. So you can spend the rest of your days trying your best to be a better husband and a better wife. And in terms of civic righteousness, that's a good thing. Do it. But make no mistake, that can't make you right with God. It can't. You can spend the rest of your days trying to bring your children up better. You can spend the rest of your days trying to be a better employee, a better friend, a better American citizen. All of that is civic righteousness. And you'll never have enough righteousness to surpass a Pharisee, a hypocrite, a whitewashed tomb. But if you just stop this, if you just stop the direction you're going in, stop relying on yourself as your ultimate authority, stop relying on culture as your ultimate authority, and it's ever-changing standards, and rely on Jesus instead, you will experience a life well-lived now and eternity in the next. Rely on Jesus' righteousness, and you will find rest. Doesn't that sound good? I can't wait to take a rest this afternoon. At Heritage, we are focusing on three things this year. Love people, love his people with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. Okay, that's eschatological again. Spend time with others who are not like you. And to open up your life to invest in the church and for the church to invest in you. Now, let me be clear. These three things are not to be done, Heritage Christian, for you to pick the pieces back up. That's not our motive. We don't do these three things to make ourselves feel better about God, our relationship with God, our relationship with our church. That's not why we do them, okay? Don't walk out of this place and say, oh my goodness, if I'm not investing in the church, I'm not, I can't make myself right with God. We don't do this to make ourselves right with God. We do these three things as expressions that we have been made right with God. Okay? We do these things as proofs that we are imperfectly relying on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We do these things as an expression of the rest that we want to enjoy in Jesus. And when you rely on Jesus as the standard of a life well lived, you will rest in Jesus as your perfect righteousness.